0: Good morning. Uh, If you are able, I would ask you to please rise for the reading of God's Word. Uh, This morning we are reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. And the Word of the Lord reads this way. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as men as, as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And this is the word of the Lord. If you're thankful for it this morning, join me in saying thanks be to God. As you're you're getting to your seats, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this chance to hear your word, to read it, to have it spoken to us, to have it explained. Father, give us the grace to apply it with discernment and wisdom. Father, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we get started here, let me give you a sermon pro tip, a sermon listening pro tip. When you don't understand something, uh, likely in the future weeks, or uh, let me back up, if you don't understand the thrust of a passage, it is likely in the future weeks those passages will be summarized. We build upon those. That's kind of what happens in good exposition. We build upon the previous weeks. Sometimes we'll reference them, some, sometimes parts of it, sometimes all of it, sometimes not at all. But generally speaking, you should be able to catch some summary statements of those previous sermons. It's good to write those down and, and then kind of apply those back to the sermons that you've listened to. So with that said, I hope you got your pens ready the overview of chapter 7 i'm just going to give you kind of some summary statements of chapter 7 walking us into the crescendo of chapter 7 so the first 10 verses begins with melchizedek as a type of christ melchizedek as a type of christ that's really what the first 10 verses are about we're talking about the excellency of jesus that he's both king and priest we talked about this righteousness and peace, and P, uh, righteousness preceding peace, and how he reigns forever and serves forever. He's, he's not a part of the order, the, the priestly order of Aaron, but of Melchizedek. Then verses 11 through 19, we see that Jesus is a better hope than that offered in the old covenant. We don't want to return to the old covenant covenant calling this building here a sanctuary would be returning to the old covenant Uh, we had this conversation at dinner table last night it was fun one there's more i could say but don't call this a sanctuary 11 through 19 don't return to the old covenant the new one's better new priest he's a new and better administration of salvation administration of salvation the old one, namely, how is it better? The old one could not give you a new heart. The new one does. That's a big deal if you understand what it means to be actually righteous. The new one can. We learn in 11 through 19 about this indestructible life of Christ, the foreverness of his priestliness. And then 20 through 25, we talked about implications of Jesus' eternal and permanent or forever priesthood. That because he lives forever, this indestructible life, he is the guarantee of God's covenant. We could have no better high priest. That reigning in heaven forever, he assures our salvation, always interceding for us with the Father. So the assurance of our salvation is rooted, is found in the uh, reigning of Christ from the heavenly throne room. We'll talk more about that today. And that he is able to save to the uttermost, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through his priestly office and through his alone. So those are kind of the broad strokes of the past three sermons in general, Hebrews chapter 7. But now we come to the apex of chapter 7, kind of the crescendo Uh, The top of chapter 7 before we walk into chapter 8. He begins this portion or today with the word for. What is the for? In light of everything I've just said, here we go. For it was indeed fitting. So putting together all that has been said about the person and work of Jesus as our heavenly high priest. Now he concludes... It is fitting that we should have such a high priest. Right, so you're tracking with That's the picture. All these things that he has said about Jesus. For it is fitting that we should have such a high priest. And now what he's going to do is he's going to go on to describe further, to say more about and rehash some other things concerning this high priest. He's going to say things like holy and innocent, unstained, He's going to talk about Christ in those terms. More on that in a bit. But what's, let's ask this, at, this, at this point, what is the point in saying this, though, when he says it is fitting? What's the point in saying this? Is he saying this just so that we can admire Jesus? Is he saying this so that we treasure Jesus because he's holy or set apart or the word of the oath or even that he's been made perfect forever? Is his point so that we would walk away saying, oh, wow, Jesus, I'm just so enthralled with how amazing you are. Well, Yes, indeed, you should be enthralled with how amazing Jesus is, but that's not the point of this passage. Here's the point that you and I, have a need strikingly similar to the incredible need-meeting ability of your high priest. Let me write that down. Basically, I'm going to argue this the rest of the time and apply it. You have a need that is strikingly similar to the incredible need-meeting ability Of your priest. Now, before I get started, realize that this point really cuts both ways. Whatever priest you turn to is revealing what you believe your need is. Whatever priest you turn to reveals your perception of your need. It could be the priest of medication, or the priest of money, or the priest of control or influence, or the priest of psychologist or such. Now here's the danger. let Let me point out a reality for you. Turning to those priests are much less costly here's why. Because they are less insulting to what your actual person and work is. What do I mean by that? They diminish the reality of your need. It's like putting a Band-Aid on heart surgery. It's like if you walked into the doctor and said, I've just had a heart attack. And he says, awesome, let me put a Band-Aid over top of your chest. And you're like, well, what are you doing? He's like, well, but I'm gonna put it right where the heart is. (laughs) Teaching her well, Ben, thank you. (laughs) That's right, laugh at foolishness. Not that those moments, not that those things never have a place. But what we turn to, to fix our need, it's telling us how we perceive and what we perceive our need to be. And so that's where he's saying this is fitting. So the problem is, is that many of us turn to a priest that isn't fitting to our need. And that's our daily problem. That's the problem and the challenge you wake up with every morning. What do you turn to as your priest is saying something about what you think your need is. The question is, is is that priest fitting to your need? Is your priest fitting to your need? That will be my third point ultimately today. Next, have you you ever heard someone say something to you and you're like, did he just insult me? Did he just make fun of me and I just didn't know it? Or like a backhanded comment, like a backhanded compliment, right? I, I, when I read this passage, I kind of felt like that's what was happening in this moment. When he says, for it is fitting, he's making a really profound statement. I asked a few people, when you hear someone say that this is fitting, that that was fitting, how do you hear that? I think when we think of fitting, maybe not all of us, but I think a majority of us probably think something of like, well, I am deserving of that. Awesome. That gift was very fitting, right? That gift I got at Christmas was very fitting. It was fitting to my need. It was fitting to my wants. It was fitting to my desires. It was fitting to what I deserve. But that's not what he means, at least not with that tone, By fitting, here's here's the picture. I want to paint for you a picture here of what he means by fitting. Now, all those stupid people who like, or fatuous people, who like to think of the scale, where like, you know, on one side of the scale, you're like, if I can just do enough good things that it'll outweigh all my bad things, and God will let me into heaven, right? You know the scale? Everybody familiar with that scale? Okay, well that's just insane, that's, that's just dumb. It reveals how ignorant one is concerning one's own need and God's holiness. But I want to use the scale idea for a moment, okay? Hang with me on the scale idea. So I think it's helpful in this fitting conversation. The key is, is the scale's got to be used with the right things on each side of the scale, okay? It's not one's good and one's, and one's evil. But let's say on the scale on one side of the scale is indeed your sinfulness. It's going to sit on that scale. But imagine with me for a moment that you don't actually know what is all there. Like your perceived sinfulness is limited to you, which is the reality. None of us know the extent of our sinfulness, just indeed how evil it is. So that is true. You can't really see all of it. But then on this side of the scale... We are told sits our priest. Jesus and his holiness. Jesus and his innocence. Jesus and his unstainedness. Jesus and his exaltedness. And Jesus and his self-sacrificialness. And here's what we're being told. We're being told that it took Jesus and all of that To outweigh what was sitting on this side of the scale. It took all of that. That much was fitting to take care of this much on this side. It took all of that and more to raise the weight of the sinfulness in our side of the scale off the ground. Here's the point. That terrible need of ours, Jesus' person and his work is able to save us to the uttermost. It was fitting for us to have such a high priest. If you want to say, if you want to think of it in terms of I was deserving of that high priest, you should think my sin made me deserving Of such a need for such a high priest. His person and his work is fitting. It fits the need. The puzzle piece fits the puzzle. And that open spot in the puzzle is your need of Christ and his holiness, his righteousness. That's how jagged it is. So when he's saying, It's fitting. I'll put this in a little more simple terms. He's saying, y'all sucked so bad. You need this incredible deliverer. And he has indeed delivered. He has indeed delivered. So let me rip the band-aid off here at the beginning. I'll pull it slowly. If when... You hear an admonishment, whether here in this context or brother to brother, sister to brother, sister to sister, so on and so forth, an admonishment, exhortation, a call to repentance, etc. and let's assume that the call to repentance is right according to God's word, and your response practically is to bristle or get defensive, self-justifying, or to get sad. You don't understand what it means for Jesus to be fitting to your plight. Because in that moment, you don't understand your need. Just a practical, how do I know if I understand if Christ is fitting? Then when someone tries to put the puzzle piece of Christ's fittingness to your unrighteousness, and you refuse to let it be placed in there, then you don't believe that he is a fitting high priest. You don't understand what it means for Jesus to be fitting to our plight. I have three, three simple points. The first point is this I'm gonna give you all three of them, and then I'm gonna work through them. First is his person was fitting. His work was fitting, and I'm going to ask the question, is it fitting to you? His person was fitting, his work was fitting, is it fitting to you? Real simple, here we go. First one, his person was fitting. Christ's person was fitting. Meaning the inward part, his character, his motivations, his thoughts, his integrity. It was fitting. And remember, like as we work through this, you need to hear everything that's said of Jesus is saying something that is not true of us. Right? So his inward character, everything we're going to say about that, the negative of that is true of us. Otherwise, he's not fitting. Because then there would be a part of the hole that's filled by our holiness. Well, how's his peace going to fit in there? We can't. Which is also why a self-righteous person like, can't be saved. Because they've got the hole plugged and patched rather poorly with something other than the only thing that can actually fit. He's saying it's fitting. So Hebrews 7, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting... We just talked about that first section, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. So we're going to start with that that after, indeed, it was fitting, and we're going to talk about the rest of that verse now. Great priest for a great need. A great priest for a great need. Here's what he's saying in, in, in summary statement here, that Jesus is free from anything that would in any way disqualify him from his priestly service. He's free from anything. There is nothing. He's going to go on to that more, and the, 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 his work is fitting as well. But for now, let's talk about his inward part. He's holy. Now, he says holy, innocent, and unstained. I'm going to talk about each one of these individually, but let me talk to you like broadly here about these first. Holy is like how he is Godwardly. Innocent is referring to how he was manwardly. His unstained aspect is more like selfwardly, like not toward like him towards himself, but the world's effect on him. So, like his holiness is godwardly, his innocence manwardly, and the unstainedness is like the world towards him. I can't come up with a, a word, a, a l y word for that. He's holy, first of all, godwardly. He was perfectly conformed to the divine will inwardly, like inside him, his character, He wanted nothing but God's will. He trusted nothing but God's way. If Satan, when Satan came to him and said, Hey, uh, uh, does God really mean that? No, God, yes, God really does mean that. There was not a question ever in Jesus' heart. He never doubted God's ways and God's character and God's law. He was always holy. He loved the Lord his God with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his mind, and with all his strength. He trusted from the depth of his soul in unwavering fashion all that his father had ever said and all that he had ever promised. He was holy. His his position and the, the bent and posture of his heart towards his father was always nothing but holy. Next, he was innocent. The writer of Hebrews is speaking of which of his interactions towards mankind, towards other people. He was always innocent. He loved his neighbor as himself. Listen, part of what you see in this like holy innocent is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength and love your neighbor as yourself. We're just on the second portion of that, love your neighbor. He was innocent always in the way he loved his neighbor. He lived not for self but was ever at the disposal of others' good as defined by God's word. I was reminded this week, like Jesus, just one aspect, Jesus was always gentle with everybody. There was never a moment that he was not gentle. So when he was whipping them, and when he was turning over tables, and when he was making fun of the Pharisees with their dress and their self-righteousness, he was still being gentle. Jesus was Jesus always gentleness is always applying the right amount of force needed to the moment. So Jesus was innocent in that he was always gentle, always applying the right amount of force needed in the situation. He lived again not for self. He was the only one to walk this earth never tempted, he never tempted, I'm sorry, he never tempted those around him, he never contaminated them, he never bound their consciences to anything other than God's will, he never injured anybody for whom he came in contact with. That's true of the Pharisees, of whom wanted to kill him, and the Samaritan woman at the well. He never held others to a standard that wasn't God's standard for that person. And he always said what needed to be said for the good of that person, regardless of whether that person wanted it or not. He was innocent, always, in everything he did, the way he did it, the motivations in which he did it, as in his interactions with God's creation, even as he does things that we might bristle at. Next, he was unstained, meaning the effects of the world did not stain him that's incredible so not only did he enter the world undefiled but he left it undefiled even after 33 years even after mingling with sinners on a daily basis even after having imperfect parents we can't hardly make it through a scroll of our news feed without sinning without being stained Most of us can't turn on the TV without being stained. And if you think you can, you're a fool. Pink says this, Just as the rays of the sun may shine into the foulest stream without losing any of their purity, so Christ moved in and out among the vilest without the glory of his holiness being sullied in the slightest degree. He touched the leper, and the leper was cleansed. He touched death, and death was defeated. He was in the presence of Satan himself, and Satan left with nothing but an empty hand and writing on the wall. That's where you should say amen. He was unstained. You and I can't make it to lunch without being stained by some of the evil around us. Our walls are too porous. That, that means penetrable, or it means stuff can get in that shouldn't get in. Holy, innocent, unstained. So he's free from things that would disqualify him. He is separate from us. This is a, a second sub point here. Separate from us. He's different from us, he was without sin. This, this emphasizes the uniqueness of his fitness. The uniqueness of his fitness. Nothing from amongst us could be fitting. Like nothing solely from among mankind could be fitting, only something similar yet separate. Similar yet separate. He was a man, but he was separate. Though he lived amongst sinners, he was infinitely apart from sinners in nature, in character, in motive, and conduct. Though he was apart, he was separate. He was in the world, but not of the world, right? We've heard that phrase. Understand that that's our calling too, to be in the world, but not of the world, to be amongst, but separate. I would pause at this moment for an application. Why are we so enthralled with being accepted by the world? I mean, listen, we all struggle with this to some measure. That's why you bite your tongue at work when you probably should speak up. Let me ask you, let me ask you a question a a different way. Why, why do we want pagans to like us so much? Listen, remember, they're of their father the devil. So if you want someone who is of their father the devil to like us so much, then you want Satan to like you much. That's insane. We're called to be separate from the world. We're called to be weird when compared to the world, although we're actually the normals. We're to be separate from the world. One of of Satan's greatest schemes and accomplishments has been training at least the past two to four generations that what's most important is for us to be liked. Why? So we can gain a hearing? Anybody notice where that's gotten us? Don't say those harsh things. Make sure you're winsome. Make sure you, make sure you tell people that you, what you're for and not what you're against. Give a compliment sandwich. Jesus was separate from the world and separate from us. That's a good thing. We needed that. And the world needs Christians who are separate from the world. They don't need Christians that look just like the world they got plenty of those. Separate from us. Next, exalted. Exalted. Jesus is exalted. What does this mean? It affirms the exalted dignity that Jesus now enjoys in heaven. This dignity, this rightful place to which he holds. Now he enjoys this in heaven. This refers to Christ present place, his current state, where he has uh, uh, risen to. He didn't just come out of the grave, but he is exalted to heaven, the throne room of God, the very presence of God. Let me, let me, let me push you on something here. A weak understanding of Christ's priestly work is an understanding that stops At the cross. So if your understanding of Christ's priestly work stops at the cross, you have a weak understanding of Christ's priestly work. His priestly work, matter of fact, the vast majority of, at least time wise, of his priestly work has happened after the cross, from the throne room of God. He still works as our priest, interceding on our behalf working, sending us resources, everything we need to persevere in our priestly work as his saints. That's a good thing. He didn't just, when he said it was finished, he didn't mean his priestly work was finished. He meant his redeeming work of being our substitute was done. And then he goes on to work out all of that in his office now. The way I put it in my notes is he didn't discharge all the duties of his office while on earth, just a portion of his priestly priestly duties. This also, this exaltedness also speaks of his power. Again, we've talked about this in Hebrews this far, but we need to be reminded that our priest is not this impotent person. He's not powerless. He's all-powerful. So when he sends resources, he sends powerful resources to his people. All of them. Powerful resources to his people. He must have the power to enact his priestly duties with such effectiveness in order to accomplish what God has promised. Does that make sense? Come on. you got to hang with me. I know it's hot in here. If he didn't have the power, he could not ensure the accomplishment of all that God has promised. Like anesthesia under surgery, you want that, right? You want that. Pink says it this way. Jesus went into the Holy of Holies, which was typified in the tabernacle. Above all created heavens, above angels and principalities, Jesus is now in the true sanctuary, why we shouldn't call this that, that's a side note, in the presence of God, and there he is enthroned as our perfect high priest. His position in heaven demonstrates that when he offered up himself, he put away sin forever, even as it sets forth Uh, his divine glory, meaning his presence, sets forth his divine glory. For who but the Son of God can sit at the right hand of the majesty on high, as it is written, be thou exalted, O God, above the heavens, Psalm 57, 5. Pink goes on, made higher than the heavens by God, this proves that complete expiation has already been made. It emphasizes the fact that Christ has entered the heavenly sanctuary on our behalf. It announces that he has been exalted above every order of created things. It makes known how immensely superior is our high priest over Aaron. It says all of that. Let me land here on this point. All that is true of Jesus' person is fitting because it is not true of us. Only Jesus fits the need of holiness. Only Jesus fits the need of our lack of innocence. Only Jesus fits the need in our stainedness. Only he does. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Like, do you believe that right now? Do you believe it? you believe it tomorrow will you believe it don't answer that say I hope so I want to God help me I'm not asking do you feel it I'm saying do you believe it here's a test if you know it to be so for those of you who like to beat yourself up when you fail listen you can repent and trust Jesus He is the only one that can fit that need. There's no amount of feeling or beating yourself up that can fit that piece, that can fit that hole. Nothing but Jesus. If he meets the standard needed, let me ask you this for others. Why do you try to live by any other standard? Your own standards, the standards of others? Why do you put yourself on one side of the scale when you've got all this on the other side of the scale? Stop it. <laughs> Jesus is the only one that's fitting for that side of the scale. His fitting, his person was fitting. Next, his work was fitting. His work was fitting. The outward part. So the first was the inward part of his personhood. Now it's the outward part, what he did. Hebrews 7, 27. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus, we know this, but let me help you f- flesh this out and apply it. He didn't have to sacrifice for his sins. And and this isn't because he happened to have a good day the day he walked to the cross. You know, he had 33 years of perfectly righteous days that qualified him to walk into the throne without having to sacrifice something first to atone for anything. He, He had none. He had no sins. The priests, though, had to offer sacrifices first to pay for their own sin before they were cleansed and able to offer sacrifice for the people's sins, right? So, Because he was imperfect. In order for him to walk into the presence of God, he had to atone for his sins via sacrificing an animal, and then he could go do it on behalf of the people. But I want you to imagine this picture. You would have two very nervous people every time this happened, and rightfully so. Two very nervous people. First of all, the people. The people who are hoping that this priest didn't have any sin that wasn't atoned for, so that when he went in to make atonement for their sin, it was received. Would that make you nervous? It would me. Now, I think, though, this is a little lost on us because we don't understand what was at stake here. We think, oftentimes, oh, God may not be happy with me. I'm going to be depressed for the next day. Sad panda. But they were not thinking about their emotional state regarding God. They were thinking life or death. If God isn't satisfied by this sacrificial work on behalf of the priest, they could be killed, and rightfully so. God would not bless their harvest. God may not bless their next battle. God may send another uh, evil army to overtake them and take them into exile. If you don't believe me, God did it multiple times. That's the nervousness we should have. If God is not satisfied with the sacrifice, not only is my life at stake, but my children and my children's children and my children's children's children the second group of people that would have been nervous was the priests. <laughs> the priest. They were scared, and they should have been. Why? They could be struck dead. Y'all have heard the stories about the, uh, the jingle bells being you know, tied to the bottom of their thing, and, and the rope, and so they could be drug out, and so on and so forth, that God struck them dead. They were worried about whether or not God... Would strike them dead as they would deserve to be. Again, I think this could be lost on us because we tend to treat coming into God's presence with less preparation than we do a child's sports ball game. We've got to make it to that game, on, game early, make sure we have the right colors on, and bring all the team snacks. But we walk willy nilly into God's presence. Let's just take Sunday mornings, for example. It's not the only time you walk into God's presence. We don't get enough sleep on Saturday. We're late. We don't check our pride at the door before walking in. You can hand it to the greeter. Say, hey, will you please take my pride today? And and, uh, pro tip, don't pick it up on your way back out. And greeter, throw it in the trash, okay? The priests were nervous. Walking into God's presence is a big deal. And just because we're in Christ doesn't mean it's no longer a big deal. If anything, because we're in Christ, we should understand how much bigger of a deal it is. For for we know that to be in God's presence took the death of the holy, almighty Son of God. The priests at this point, their perception of being able to walk into God's presence was the death of these animals. That was ultimately pointing to something greater. So every time the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, everyone had their fingers crossed, shaking at the knees, nervous and anxious. Would God accept the priest and would God accept the sacrifices made by the priests? What a way to live. But with Jesus, hear me church, but with Jesus, there is no room for anxiousness as to whether or not You and I would be struck dead. There is no need. Right now, if your hand is on the lamb, there is no need for you to be anxious about whether or not that sacrifice is acceptable. There's no need. There's no need. He had no sin, He was perfect. Jesus was not nervous. Even as he sweated drops of blood, he had no sin. His prayer was that God would help him persevere or last his frail humanity to last under the weight of God's wrath as it absorbed it all because he understood how frail his humanity was. But he was not nervous. We don't have to be nervous. We don't have to question whether or not his sacrifice was enough. We don't have to live without that assurance. We don't have to live wondering. We don't have to think, you know, as I plow this field, I sure hope the upcoming sacrifice is acceptable because I really need to feed my family from this harvest. You and I don't have to worry about that. That's one of those examples from my sermon that would be good for you to apply. What's the field that you're plowing? And do you worry about Whether or not you can feed your family from it. Because you're worried about whether or not God looks upon you with favor. Because you doubt the acceptability of Christ's sacrifice. But that's how many of us live. We live like these nervous Israelites. Nervous about your redemption. Man, was Jesus' sacrifice acceptable for my sins? Listen, I know none of you are like walking around going, man, I just don't know if Jesus is acceptable for my sin. That's not, that's, none of us do that. But when you turn to something else to pay for those sins, you are doing the same thing. You're saying, I don't know if it was enough. I've got to go do A and B. You're nervous about your redemption. But listen to me, church, who do you think Jesus was? Who do you think Jesus was? Jesus was not just some slub that God grabbed off the street and threw on the cross while crossing his fingers. God didn't place his son under the weight of his wrath while hoping that he would last. That's why all this language about him being perfected that he, was, he grew in wisdom and he grew in obedience. He grew in righteousness. Why? What's happening? His father's preparing him so that when he goes to the cross, there is no nervousness. There is no doubt in God's mind as to whether or not he will perfectly absorb all the sins of all of God's children. Jesus didn't walk in to be your sacrifice while hoping that God wouldn't notice this sin he did over here. Jesus walked in, holy, unstained, and innocent, separate from us. Some of us live not just nervous about our redemption, but anxious about feeling redeemed. Anxious about feeling redeemed. I would propose to you that you care more about the feeling of redemption than the reality of redemption. But Jesus walked in, made atonement, and he walked back out. That's a fact. It's what we just celebrated last week. Tell your emotions to get in line or to go to hell. Anxious about feeling redeemed. Number three, Offering our own sacrifices, thinking we can bridge the gap in some sort of lacking in Jesus' sacrifice. I know that was a lot. Offering your own sacrifices to bridge the gap in Jesus' sacrifice. To save yourself. Why would you do such a thing unless you're nervous about the sufficiency of his redemption? And number four, some of you live nervous Because you just simply don't care. You don't care about the the totality and the perfect priestly work of Christ as He walked in and walked back out. Or some of you don't care enough. You should care. It's life or death. Last point: Is it fitting to you? Is it fitting to you? Hebrews 7, 28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He's been made perfect forever. I'm not going to, this point does not apply just to this verse. I'm going to dance around in some of the verses before this as well. But in the idea of is it fitting to you, let me ask you this question. Who do you have in your life that can and does remind you that you have a fitting high priest? I'm not counting this moment here. And I want to give you two important caveats here. A, someone who, or number one, someone who is willing to tell you. Someone who's willing to tell you that you have a priest who has been made perfect forever. uh, to, To expand upon that, that Christ was a fitting sacrifice, you don't have to crucify yourself. You don't have to put yourself up on the cross. All you need to do is repent and believe. Do you have someone willing to tell you that? Do you also have someone who's willing to tell you how terrible your sin really is? And yet, how fitting Jesus is as a sacrifice for it. Do you have someone and telling you to repent? So someone willing to tell you? Second, do you have someone who actually knows you and is willing to tell you what you need to hear? Someone willing to say, it is fitting." That, that, that's what the author's doing here for those in Hebrews. He's saying, "You, Hebrews, it's fitting. It's fitting. Your need required this. So do you have someone practically? And I would say, someone other than your spouse, although your spouse has a valuable role to play here, The danger with it just being your spouse is you know how to justify not listening to your spouse. Why? Because you know all the the bad things about your spouse. (laughs) And you can say, in your mind, you can go, oh yeah, but you said this the other day. And somehow that makes you feel better about the truth they just said to you. You can write it off. So someone you you can less easily write it off, who can say, you know what? Your sin is great in this matter, but Jesus is fitting. Turn to him. So, do you have someone? It would be a good point of application. Is he fitting to you? Next, what would it take to inspire your heart, soul, mind, and strength to worship Christ? Practically, what would that take? What, is that, what does it take to move a heart toward worship? To honor Christ. So, to, to explain worship here, to honor him every day. So, I don't mean to, to sing in service with great. Uh, emotive responses, you know, with big emoticons hanging over your head. That's not what I mean. But to worship God every day, all day, to honor him in everything you do, to overcome sin that you've been sinning with for a long time, to live with joy, to get off your lazy butt and do something. Those are all definitions of worship. What would it take? I think it takes two things. Two things, and both of them. The first one is this, to recognize your great need. To recognize your great need. And that's what Hebrews is doing for us in this moment. That's what he means by fitting. I want you to recognize your great need. It required this. For some of us, our recognition or perception of our need is woefully low. Woefully low. It's not all of you. But a lot of us, it's woefully low. Some of us don't realize it enough. For you, every time someone tries to admonish or exhort you, you don't believe their exhortation or their act of priestliness towards you because it apparently isn't fitting to you. If there never is an act of or exhortation fitting to you, then Christ, as your high priest, never was and never will be fitting to you. Listen, our greatest need is not to be fulfilled or to be happy, although those are certainly byproducts of God's gracious work. Your greatest need is to be brought near to God, and the only way for that to happen is for your sin, your great sin to be Paid for. That is your greatest need. That is my greatest need. What would it take to inspire your heart, soul, mind, and strength to worship Christ? One, recognizing your great need. You should spend regular regular time rehearsing your great need. Equally so, number two, believing that he meets that need. Believing that Christ meets that need. That God appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Meaning he fits that need perfectly forever. For some of you, you don't believe he meets that need. I mean, you will say right now, I believe he meets that need. But tomorrow, tomorrow, when you know you've sinned, and you stand there and beat yourself up, you're not believing he meets that need. Or tomorrow, for those who who don't want to admit you messed up, you too don't believe that he fits that need. Otherwise, you would run quickly. You would run quickly. Some of us spend so much of life doubting God's incredible kindness and mercy to us and the foreverness of it. We're constantly worried, constantly trying to add to his redeeming work. You question God's infinite kindness to you, wondering why or how could he ever possibly pay for the great sins that I have done. To you, I say, repent of your incredible arrogance and believe that God's son Jesus is more than sufficient to meet the need that your sin has created. He is Fitting. and not just is he fitting now but he's fitting forever when he plugs it he plugs it for good when he's on this side of the scale the other scale gets wiped away it doesn't just sit there that's where the metaphor breaks down because now the, that side's empty is washed clean. Those are the two ingredients for rightful worship. Recognize your need, believing that he meets that need. Spurgeon says this It seems to me that if God appointed Christ to be an atonement for sin, and if he is satisfied with his sacrifice, I may well be content. And since, he goes on, and since he has also accepted me in Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior, my soul feels perfectly content and understands why she is contented. Spurgeon talks about how this wins the affections of men. He says some questions like this. How can you not love someone who offered up himself for you? How could you not... Love someone who gave himself to fill your greatest need. Think about when you have a need and someone comes along and fills that need. How much more so the great need that you have before a holy God and for him to die to fit that need. Which leads me to my last sub point Jesus offered up himself. Jesus offered up himself, we're told here in verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people since he did this once for all when he offered up, what? Himself. What we learn here is this little gem, and I'm not going to spend much time on it, but we learn this doctrine of the self-sacrifice of men for God and of men for men. Spurgeon says this, Meaning that like this, he offered up himself, commenting on that. This is the nursery of brave spirits and the school in which true heroes are trained. None have been bolder for the truth and for the right and for the advancement of the ages and for the glory of God than those who have enshrined the blood red cross within their hearts And who have been prepared for love of it, even to die. He offered up himself. You want courage, bravery to stand for what's right in the face of your spouse, to stand for what's right in the face of your child, your boss, or your own evil, unbelieving flesh? The nursery of that brave spirit is a verse like that when he offered up himself. This is the nursery of brave spirits of men and women who do things of eternal great value. So I end with this. It was fitting that we would have such a great high priest. He's saying it fits your need. Sufficiently, perfectly, eternally. You don't got to be anxious about it. You don't got to turn anywhere else. Stop turning anywhere else. It's fitting. Nothing else fits. What's messed up in our person is perfect in Christ. What's messed up in our work is perfect in Christ. There's such perfection that only Jesus was fitting to redeem it all. We were that bad. The people around us who don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ are that bad. But they have a priest who is fitting to their need. Your lost neighbor has a priest who is fitting to their great need. Do you believe that? Listen, the more you believe that in your own life, the more it will spill into your talk with your neighbor and your kids. And so on. Jesus is fitting to our need. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the enlightening work of the Spirit through your word to show us the diagnosis. Of our souls that that it 's broken that 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 we have sinned against the holy God, but also a word and a promise that the prognosis is good for those who have been washed in the blood of this priest father i we are eternally thankful to you. Lord, we are eternally grateful and worship you for sending your Son to meet our need, to make us holy, to make us innocent, to wipe away the stains on us, to separate us from this evil world destined to hell, and to welcome us into your throne room where one day we will reside with you and reign and rule forever. I thank you. Help us to keep our eyes on our greatest need and not all these silly needs that are just a distraction so that we might then in turn keep our eyes on the only one who can fulfill that need, Jesus the Christ. Father, for hits. His name's sake, in his name's sake, for his name's sake, that we pray. Amen.